This is Robert Furrow and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so that we can know what to believe and how to rightly divide the Word of God. We know that the Word of God is all we need. We know that it is truth and that the truth sets you free. We want to make sure that we are handling it right because there are those who don't. Our first question tonight comes from our study from last Wednesday night. And if you're joining us for the very first time and you have questions about that study, we're in Galatians chapter two, the first part of the chapter, then feel free to ask them. Also, if you're a new believer here and you have questions, then ask your questions. There's nothing that is too basic that we cannot take time to cover that others will not be blessed with. And as always, questions about apologetics or or Bible questions or discrepancies in the Bible, uh, theology, any of those kind of things, you can go ahead and ask. So let's go ahead and go to the first question uh, we have today. And this, again, comes from Galatians chapter 2. When Paul wrote the book of Galatians, he was upset. And you can tell that from the very beginning right after his initial greetings. And usually in letters, he says something like, I've heard about your faith or your love has abounded or, or what you are, what, what's happening with you has gone all throughout uh, the whole world, something along those lines. But to them, he says nothing. And then he says to the Galatians in chapter one, I marvel that you have so quickly turned from the gospel to another gospel that is not even a gospel because the legalists had come in and they had believed them. They had followed a false teaching. God had established and planted these churches in the region of Galatia and they had planted uh, and they had believed a lie. And so in the second chapter, Paul starts to talk about the apostles, going to them, making sure that what he believes is the same thing that they believe. And and, And he says a few things. Our question is, was Paul disrespectful to the other apostles. And I want to go ahead and put this up on the screen for you. We have Galatians chapter 2 up. I want to start in verse 6 where it says, but those who seem to be something. So right away, he's talking about the apostles. He's talking about Peter and James and John. And he's upset. And we want to find out, was he disrespectful and why was he disrespectful? So he says, but for those who seem to be something, whatever they are, it makes no difference to me, God shows no personal personal favoritism to no one. So Paul is not being really nice to the other apostles. He says, for those who seem to be something added nothing to me. Now he meant by that, they seem to be something, right? Again, he's being a little disrespectful. They added nothing to me, meaning his gospel was complete. He didn't need any more of it. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was committed to Peter, For he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostle to the circumcised also works effectively in me to the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, that's Peter again. When James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. Now, why is Paul talking like this about them? Who seemed to be pillars. He's obviously upset about them. And here's my theory, and we get it as we continue to read on in this chapter, that Peter is upset because of, Paul is upset because of an event. There had been, he thought that they were in some way adding to this false doctrine of legalism, that somehow they embraced it. And we get it here as we move a little bit later on in the chapter, and here he gives us an account that happened. It says, now when Peter had come to Antioch, Antioch and Barnabas were pastoring in, uh, 
Paul and Barnabas were pastoring in the area of Antioch. And now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face, because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, James was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, and certain men came who were Jewish, it says, for before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. So now Peter is wanting to please men, and rather than stand for what is right, he withdraws himself. And then he says in verse 13, and the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him. So now we're getting an idea of why he's upset. They have kind of, they've said, we don't want to lay anything on the Gentiles. But when they come down, important people from Jerusalem, they now start treating the Gentiles differently. And Paul thinks that this plays into the false teaching. Not that they're false teaching. The false teachers were legalists and they were not the apostles. But the fact that they operated this way played in to them believing the false teachers. And I think that's why Paul's so upset. And he says, and the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with them, so that even Barnabas was carried away in their hypocrisy. Well, no wonder he's upset. Barnabas is the pastor of the church there with those Gentiles. And he got carried away and saw himself separated. These are Jews who were keeping, somewhat keeping the law. Remember, the temple wasn't gone yet. And when the legalists came in and said, you have to keep the law in order to really be saved, then uh, Paul, Paul saw what the disciples were doing, what the apostles were doing, as hindering the work that he was doing in Antioch. And now that he's dealing with this thing again, you can tell that he's upset. So yes, I do think that he was disrespectful to the apostles. I don't think that was right, by the way. I think he shouldn't have been, but he was because that's the way he was feeling. The Bible doesn't tell us that what Paul is doing is always right, and we don't wanna think that Paul never made mistakes because I think that he did. This is one instance when Paul is upset and he talks about the apostles in a way that he shouldn't talk about them. In another place, he gets in an argument with Barnabas. What we do know is that it happens. One of the best things that we can learn from this is that there are gonna be people who do things sometimes that we are trying to our hardest to teach and to help people through certain struggles and then they do something and it causes frustration in our lives. And I think Paul's going through that frustration here. All right, so that was uh, from our study from last Wednesday night. Let me go ahead and get over here to our questions. And if you are new here, really glad that you're here. I hope that God is blessing you. Uh, resurrection celebration tonight at our church and then tomorrow all over the world uh, literally billions of people will be celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ what an amazing thing to go from a small ministry in Galilee to all over the world in our day two billion over two billion Christians professed Christians in the world I know that all two billion of them are real Christians genuine Christians but they're at least professed Christians so we have our first question and it's from Andre. Andre says, because Paul was a Pharisee, was his opinion how, of how the folks in Corinth perceived him was that of arrogance. In 2 Corinthians 12, he seems to be going on his way, uh, out of his way to boast while struggling at it. Yeah, let's go ahead and go to that text. I do really like this text. 
and I think it corresponds greatly with what we were talking about in the book of Galatians. So this is 2 Corinthians 12. Let me see if I can get to the right spot here. All right. Um, the thorn in his flesh. Um, signs of apostleship. Okay, yeah, here we go. Let me go ahead and put that up on the screen for you. And um, so the question is, uh, he seems to be struggling while he's boasting with it. Um, let's see. Yeah, um, was his opinion on how the folks in Corinth perceived him was that of arrogance. All right, let's go ahead and take a look at this passage and put it up on the screen for you. All right, so Paul is fighting against the legalist again at Corinth. And they are coming in and they're trying to make the people very religious. Paul was a Pharisee. He was very religious and he had given all of that up. So people were coming in trying to make the, the people what Paul was when Paul had more than what these guys that are coming in say in the, in the, in the terms of being a legalist and being a Pharisee. Listen to what he says. He says, I have become a fool, meaning I'm about to boast. I'm going to become a fool because you guys need to know I gave up all this stuff that they're trying to come in and make you like I was. So here's what he says. I have become a fool in boasting. You have compelled me for I ought to have been commended by you. For in nothing was I left behind the most um, eminent apostles. Though I am truly, he says, though I am truly, I am nothing, truly the signs of an apostle were accompanied among you all. He goes on to say, let's go to verse 13. For what is it which you were inferring to the other churches, except that I myself was not burdensome to you? Forgive me for my wrong. Uh, and he talks about the love for the church. Let's see if I can get to the right spot here. Uh, oh man, I want to get to this. Uh, let me see. Did I go over it? Well, gosh, I'm missing it here. All right, just let me go ahead and tell you what it says instead of spending all this time uh, looking at that. It would be great if we could get the references like, you know, 2 Corinthians 12 and then the actual verses uh, that are in there. That way I don't have to go through the chapter trying to find it. Um, but Paul just boasts about his position. He was a Pharisee of Pharisee. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was the son of Hebrew parents. Hebrew, um, uh, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews and a Pharisee of Pharisees. So his dad was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee. And he was boasting about these things to say, I consider them to be dung. He says that in the book of Galatians. I consider these things not to be important at all. And they're trying to come and put these things on you and make them important. And when Paul starts to boast about these things, he says, you guys have made me do it. You shouldn't have made me do it, but I'm now going to boast in the things that I achieved that I put away because they're trying to make you like me and I'm not even like that anymore. It is such a strong argument for uh, against uh, the legalist. Thank you, Andre, for your question. Uh, that's great. I do appreciate that. Uh, we have another question from D on cremation uh, regarding on cremation. Yeah, cremation regarding cremation. Is there a reference to allow or disallow cremation of the body after death in the Bible? Thank you. The quick answer to this uh, DT is no. There is nothing in the Bible that talks about cremation. Uh, we are free to choose how we would like to have our bodies taken care of after we die. 
Now, the question often is brought up by some that, well, what, what about God um, glorifying our bodies? That God might not be able to do that if we're cremated. But our bodies go back to dust anyway. Cremation is a faster way to get back to dust. dust. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. It's a quicker way to get there. It's going to happen over time. Think about people that were living during Abraham's time. There perhaps is nothing left of some of those people, maybe even most of those people. And yet God is going to be able to resurrect those that had faith because our God is able to do that. All right. So I just give you a quick answer. We get this question a lot. Um, and um, so I'm going to move through it quickly. I'll, um, I'll put some scriptures together that I can go to a note um, really fast and just kind of cover it in more detail when we get um, that question. In fact, frequently asked questions, I'll do that with so that we can just go to it, look at a couple of scriptures and, uh, and then go ahead and move on. Uh, so, all right. Um, question, how will there be room on earth if the millennial kingdom, if every saved person throughout history? Well, those who are living on the earth during that time are the people that survived the tribulation period and there will be some gentiles and there will also be jews because the jews are protected during that time by god and they populate the earth we also rule and reign with him but we are in our glorified bodies and i don't know that everyone out of all of history is going to be ruling and reigning remember it's the church that rules and reigns with christ so you can say well there's been a lot of christians there's two billion christians right now on, uh, on the earth, uh, professed Christians, and you could say, well, how are we then going to know uh, that all those people can fit? Well, I think that God could take care of it. I think we don't all have to be here at the same time. I think we could work through it. We know that there is a heaven. We also know that Jesus was able to disappear at will and could go through walls. And so there's a spiritual realm and a physical realm. And in our glorified bodies, it seems that we're able to go back and forth from that physical to spiritual realm. I do not think that this is a problem. I don't think that it brings up any kind of a difficulty for the Bible. Because, yeah, there have been a lot of people that have lived and a lot of them were believers before Christ and a lot of them are Christians now but they don't all have to be here ruling and reigning at the same time. So I hope that helps. Fact, uh, fact check these hands. All right, good. I appreciate that. We have another question from Jari. Jari says, question, why does God allow false teachers to exist and grow? And why do some that teach the truth get shut down? Why did God allow Satan to know scripture? Temptation, um, temptation be easier. Temptation would be easier if Satan didn't know Scripture. All right. So let's see what you got there. You got got in basically three questions. Um, why does God allow false teachers to exist and to grow? All right. So let's start with that one. Um, God created the earth, and He created it with good and a choice for evil, and men made a decision to choose evil. There had to be evil. There had to be because it was a choice of love. We had to be able to choose. If we were born forced to follow God, then that would be forced love. But God gave us a choice that we could invite him into our lives and or in the Old Testament, you could choose to live for him, giving yourself to him wholeheartedly. 
And so God allows false teachers to continue to allow those choices. God's got a plan and a purpose for those false teachers that we would pour into the scriptures. We would know, we know the scriptures better because of the false teachers that are out there. We need to know how to fight Mormonism. We need to know how to fight Jehovah Witnesses. We need to know how to battle against uh, progressive Christians and the legalists. And because the, of these false teachers, we, are, we dive into the scripture more. God's able to use all things together for the good. And God has given men free will. I believe completely that God has given men free will. And so some of them choose to try to make a living by being a false teacher. So God allows there to be false teachers, but there's a lot of things that God allows, even though it would be easier for us if he didn't. So if there weren't false teachers out there, we wouldn't have a lot of people being deceived, but God's using it and God allows it like he allows a lot of other things. You go on to say, why do some that teach the truth get shut down? All right, so that's the second part of your question. So again, God's choosing people and using them and God has a plan for people. God's got a will for each one of us and we wanna to submit to that will. So the Bible says, that we are to be a sacrifice, that we are to lay down our lives. And that might include setting aside grand ideas that we have. The Bible says, live a make every effort to live a peaceable and quiet life. Sometimes there are a lot of people that just wanna build the biggest kingdom and the biggest following they can. That's always a mistake. What you want is what God gives you. You want to be responsible for what God has given you. He's given you talents, right? It's the money, and he wants you to be responsible for it. But I don't know that we're supposed to be trying to build the biggest kingdom that we can, and I think that this has been a problem for churches throughout the century, centuries. And someone who is teaching a small home church, ministering to those people, struggling to keep a job, and ministering to them, by the way, loving what they do because they're filled by the Holy Spirit and they're called to do it, are gonna get maybe even more rewards than someone who's a pastor of a large megachurch. Because that pastor is getting a lot of pats on his back. That pastor is having a lot of people say, hey, I'm really blessed by you. And I think that God's saying, you're getting your reward. But the guy who does it quietly and just seeks after God then he gets his rewards when he's there because he's serving those people with the right heart. He's not serving them to, for some kind of status position. And that's always dangerous for anybody that gets up in front of people. There are those temptations that are there. Charles Swindoll said, for every hundred men who can handle failure, there's only one who could handle success. It might be better if everyone was just doing smaller things. That might end up being better. I'm reminded of a couple, it's an old story, it's an old analogy of a couple that were on the mission field. And they came back and they were old, they were ready to die, and they were on a boat with uh, Roosevelt, the president. And when they got to the dock, there were all these people cheering him because he had been in Africa on a hunting trip and they were in Africa for decades ministering. And the old missionary looked at his wife and said, it's not right. We're there pouring out into people. He goes there and kills a few animals and he gets home and all of a sudden there's all of this cheers for him and we get home and there's nothing. And his wife looked at him and said, we're not home yet. What we do, we do for eternity. What we do, we do for heaven. And I think that's really important for us to know. So why do some uh, teachers get shut down? Because 
Well, if, they're, if they've done everything right and they're serving God and loving God, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how many people they're ministering to. They're ministering effectively. Why did God allow Satan to know scripture? That's another question. I love how you get three questions in to one question, Jari. Um, I'm just teasing you. Uh, so why did God allow Satan to know scripture? Again, he's a, he's, a, he's a being that had choice. He had choice to either follow God or not follow God. And he can learn. And angels are above us. They're more powerful than us. Um, the, the Bible says that Jesus became a little lower than an angel when he became a man. And it's great that angels serve us in ministry, it says at the end of Hebrews chapter 1, that they are ministering spirits sent to minister to those who have salvation. And I love that. So Satan, God didn't block them from being able to know scripture and they can use it against us, but we have been guaranteed success. The Bible says that the gates of hell will not prevail against you. And he tells us that when he gives Peter the keys to the kingdom which is the gospel, how people get into the kingdom and it's authority. We, the church have authority to get people into the kingdom and ministers help angel and angels help minister to us. And Satan blinds the eyes of those who do not believe and uses scripture. He used scripture. He used yeah scripture on Eve and he tried to deceive Jesus by using scripture, but Jesus held on to scripture and wasn't deceived. That's the key. We want to hold on to scripture. So um, why questions are awful hard, you know, um, why did God allow Satan to know scripture? Th those are hard to deal with. I don't know all of the reasons and I would not even want to try to speak for God, right? Um, but we do know that he does and that he tries to use it against us, twist it and use it against us. And we've been given power to trample on serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy and nothing will by any means harm us. And when we stand for Christ against him, we put on our armor, stand and pray, Satan is going to be ineffective at shooting his fiery darts at us in the middle of really what is spiritual warfare. The gospel and fighting for the gospel is what spiritual warfare really is all about. All right. Thank you, Jari. I appreciate you, you and I appreciate uh, your question. Uh, we have another question from Paul. Paul says, I was wondering what the Bible says about being certain of God's existence versus just having faith or believing. It is common to have doubts sometimes and questions and question your own faith at times. Does the feeling go away or is it just human instinct to have doubt? Um, that's a great question to ask the weekend that we are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. The answer is very simple. We are not saved by certainty. We are saved by faith, meaning that, that we don't have to be certain in order to make it into heaven. We believe. We choose to believe something that we don't see. Now we have hope. And the Bible says that if we had what we had, we wouldn't need hope. If we had all the promises, we wouldn't need them. So we have hope from the God of hope because we believe the promises that he's given us. And belief is a choice. This is really, really important to understand because sometimes people say, well, I just can't believe. No, what you really need to say is, I won't believe because you can choose to believe someone. You might have doubts as to whether or not what they said was true. If a friend of yours tells you something happened to them, you could choose to believe them. 
And does it mean that you might not go, huh, I wonder if that really happened. So we believe what God has to say. And God has given us an incredible amount of proof. We have evidence from the Old Testament and from the New Testament scriptures where God foretold the future. If you can look at that evidence that is strong, there's no other book in the Bible. Excuse me. Um, there are something like 30 religious books around the world. And the only one that has prophecy in it is the Bible. The Bible foretold what Alexander the Great would do to Tyre. And Alexander the Great did it. The Bible said that the city of Tyre would be scraped clean and thrown into the sea. Now, when is that ever going to happen? How is that going to happen? And that's said of a city. That could happen to any city along the coast. And Alexander the Great marches towards Jerusalem, comes to the city of Tyre. They've moved out, excuse me, they've moved out on an island to escape from him. And they take all the bricks and they cast them into the sea to make a causeway to bring out their siege engines to take the city. And they eventually did it. They, they wiped the city completely and totally clean. The Bible foretold it and it happened just like it did. There's an account that Alexander the Great was brought into the temple, that a sacrifice was made for him by the high priest when he got to the temple, and that the high priest showed him in the book of Daniel where he was in that book. And that Alexander the Great saw it and was so moved by it that he left the city and did not destroy it. That he was really moved by finding himself in scripture. So this all helps us to know it's not blind faith. Doubts, yes, welcome to the club. Doubts happen for everyone. I remember as a kid going to resurrection celebration services. I went to the Methodist church. We would have a morning service out in the park. And I remember going to that and thinking, do I really believe that God raised him from the dead? Remember, the disciples struggled to believe it when they first started discovering it. The women got back to the disciples and told them the, the tomb is empty. And then Mary Magdalene came back and said the, that Jesus appeared to me. Later on that day, he would appear to Peter. But remember on the Emmaus road, the two disciples were walking along the way and Jesus came alongside of them. And the Bible says their eyes were shut and he said, why are you guys so sad? And they said, are you the only stranger in all of Jerusalem? We had hoped. Then they say, this Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty in, in, um, in signs and deeds, we had hoped that he would be the Messiah. So they doubted. And, and besides that, women had come and told them that Jesus had risen from the dead and they didn't believe. They didn't believe that the tomb was empty. They didn't even go on to look at it. The disciples didn't believe right away. In fact, the Bible says that when Jesus was ascending up into heaven, that some doubted. So some of the disciples that saw Jesus ascend up into heaven doubted. That tells you where we are. Jesus said to Thomas, Thomas, you have seen and believed. Blessed are those who don't see and yet believe. So believing is a choice. You do your research, you go and you study, and then you trust and you believe. And there's a lot of times where I feel like I have certainty for what I believe. It becomes stronger and stronger. That doesn't mean that I don't ever have any doubts, but it does mean that yes, it does get better and better as time goes along. And so welcome to the club when you struggle and you have doubts and your faith is small, but all you need is a mustard seed. 
all you need is a tiny amount of faith and you could say to mountains be removed and cast into the sea. And since we've never seen a mountain removed and cast into the sea, then we know that that's an analogy. He's saying with a little bit of faith, you can move mountains from your life. If you can just trust in him, you've already got enough. You don't need faith to grow, to do great things. You just need to put trust in God and believe in him. That's it. That's all that you need to do. All right, so let me just reread this, make sure I got your whole question. I was wondering what the Bible says about being certain of God's existence versus just having faith and believing. Is it common to have doubts sometimes and questions of your own faith at times? Does this feeling go away or is it just a human instinct to have doubt? All right, so I think I got all of your question ans uh, questions answered. If um, you have follow-ups, feel free to ask the follow-ups on your question. If I didn't quite cover it correctly, if I didn't quite get it all, all right? So thank you very much. If you're joining us here for the first time, really glad to have you here. Uh, if you have a question that you wanna submit, just write the word question down or put a question mark in front of it. Then give me your question and we'll take time to look at it through the lens of scripture. Our desire is not to just to find out what my opinion would be, because my opinion really means nothing. We wanna know what the Bible says and how we can look at things biblically and scripturally. All right, so um, let me go ahead and bring in our next question here. It is from John. John joins us from YouTube. John says, where does it specifically, uh, where does it specifically say, I think, that Jesus would spend three days and three nights in the grave? I've always read and heard the Messiah would die, be buried on the third day, rise again. Friday, Saturday, two days, Sunday, three days. Yeah, um, so I don't remember the exact point where Jesus said it, but Jesus said as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man shall be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Jesus also said, tear this temple down, and in three days I will rebuild it. He wasn't speaking of the temple there, the stones on the temple. He was speaking about his own body that would be destroyed and he was gonna do it. He was gonna lay down his life and then in three days he would rise again. Uh, now, there are some who believe that this is a common saying of their day, that it was something that you could find in other writings and I haven't had time to really research this and find out whether there are other writings and it was just a common euphemism of their day three days and three nights, three days and three nights. And that it just meant a certain specific amount of time, days and nights together. So Jesus was crucified. If he was crucified on Friday, then you have some of Friday night, then you have, well, you have some of Friday, then some of Friday night, then you have Saturday and Saturday night, and then some of Sunday to be able to get to two days. I mean, two, two nights and three days, right? So that's problematic. If it was a euphemism, then that takes care of it. Now, as I said, I'd like to see some more research on that. I'd like to look into it a little bit more. It is possible that Jesus was crucified on a Thursday because the, the Passover Sabbath was a Sabbath as well as the Sabbath. And there's even a place in the Bible where it says after the Sabbaths, the women were going to the tomb with, with a plural. So that there may have been a Passover Sabbath and then the regular Saturday Sabbath back to back. And so Jesus was crucified on Thursday and that was the day that year. Remember Passover floats, right? And so that was the day that year that they uh, sacrificed the lambs on Thursday, the day that Jesus was crucified. And then you would have uh, him 
on the cross on Thursday. You would have him taken off of the cross and being in the ground Thursday night, in the grave Friday, then, then Friday night, in the grave on Saturday, and a part of Sunday night before he rose again would make three days. Now, there's a whole teaching out there by Charles Swindoll where he makes a point that Jesus was crucified on Wednesday. And he gives all of his reasons why he thinks that's the case. And if that's the case, then you have a full three days and three nights in the tomb. There, there's the kind of the gamut. What do I believe? I choose not to worry about this one. I, I, and maybe that's why I want to look into this euphemism idea a little bit more. But I, I choose just to go, you know what? God's got this taken care of. And whether or not we have a right understanding, the Bible never says Jesus was crucified on Friday. It never says that he was crucified on, on Thursday or Wednesday. Um, and so uh, there, we know that there was a Sabbath in between. That's all we know. That he was crucified, buried, and then on the third day rose again. And I don't know how you would get to, I don't know how you would get to Wednesday, Jesus being buried, the Sabbath starting, and so them not being able to uh, put, um, not be able to take care of the body. So if there's Friday and Saturday, you could easily have Saturday because the two Sabbaths are together. All right, so that's just one of those things. I don't really worry too much about it. I'm not that concerned about how that all worked out. I think that when we get up into heaven, we'll have it figured out. But there are a lot of ideas out there and people have spent a lot of time in dealing with that one, John. All right, thank you very much. I appreciate it. If you are new here and you have a question, you can write down your question and then reread it a couple of times. Make sure that it makes sense and then go ahead and submit it. Sometimes I have to end up guessing on what those questions mean and uh, don't really like to do that. Um, all right, so we have a question here from Ashley. Ashley joins us from Facebook. Uh, Ashley says, I have seen videos talking about how the music of Bethel Hillsong Elevation is bad due to some of the teachings of those churches. I usually just turn on Christian radio and don't pay attention to who the singers are. Is this something Christians need to watch out for? Thank you, Ashley. That's a great question. Uh, we have a radio station, Reach Radio, here in Tucson. And we have to make a decision. Are we going to play music from Bethel, from Hillsong, from Elevation? Now, uh, Bethel has some theological problems. They are a Pentecostal church, and Pentecostals are fine. But in the Pentecostal church, this teaching that God wants you rich it thrives and also kingdom theology and so a lot of the songs will have they don't believe in the rapture they believe that we're going to make the world better and better and better and then we're going to hand it over to Jesus we're going to Christianize the world and hand it over to Jesus and sometimes in their songs you can hear that but when I when when we who believe in the preacher of rapture when, well those of us who are premillennial hear songs about the kingdom we think the kingdom of God in us they're writing songs saying, go out and make the world the kingdom of God. We have that job. So that's a problem. But more of a problem is the false gospel, the, the prosperity gospel, the false gospel that is probably the prosperity gospel. That's the bigger problem. And so by playing their music, do we give them credibility? And the answer is they've already got it because of their music. Calvary Chapel, the church that I pastor, the group of churches that I'm a pastor in, uh, started Maranatha music back in the 70s. 
and gave Calvary Chapel a platform because of the music. And so churches have discovered that that's the case. Now, I'm not saying that about Bethel. I don't know how Bethel started it. I know Hillsong. Um, they've got a couple of videos out now about Hillsong, and it talks about their desire to use music to be able to get a platform. And some of the songs that Hillsong, of Hillsong are great. They're great songs. They talk about God. They, they lift Him up and um, elevation, the same kind of thing. I think the thing uh, with elevation is just not a kind of a solid teaching on the gospel all the time. I'm not going to judge him as to being a false teacher. I know a lot of people do. I'm not going to. Um, I, 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 when I listen to some of his teachings, I see him really trying to teach the Bible and really trying to go through passages. Other times, I don't see that. I just see kind of that self-help, positive teaching, Christianity, Jesus as the self-help person. And I think that's problematic. And so do these things give them a platform? Yeah, it does give them a platform. And do we at the church take the giftings of Christians who are in these organizations that have some problems and do we throw away what God's doing within them? And I'm, I am more prone to say, I don't want to be legalistic and I don't want to bind myself. I don't want to say, I can't listen to any of that because then I'm taking away some of my freedom. Now, we've had questions. We've, as a church and radio station, we've limited the play of Hillsong because of some of the things that happened there. If you don't know, there, were, there, was, some, there was a sexual assault that they covered up. There was a, a pedophile, pedophilia incident with, I think, the founder of Hillsong that was covered up. And there have been resignations because of that. And just with all of that, if, if ever, and listen, if, if someone is pastoring is listening to me, if something bad happens at your church, something unthinkable, like a rape or someone molests a child, then don't cover it up. Don't try, don't worry about your reputation. Let God worry about the reputation. Just get it out in the open. Call the police. Do what you've got to do. Everyone will respect you in the end. If you try to cover it up, then your heart's going to be revealed that you're just trying to build a kingdom and you're more concerned about your church than you are about what happened to that person. So I tell our people at the church, if you ever see anything inappropriate, you tell us right away. If it's worth calling the police, then call the police. If you see anything with one of our pastors or elders that is inappropriate at any level, then come and tell us. And I say that if you see me doing anything that you think is, is not right, then come to the elders of the church because they have authority over me. And this is what Hillsong didn't do because they were trying to protect the brand. And that is so incredibly dangerous. And so we have limited the, the amount of songs. I, I, I told the worship leaders, listen, we don't want to, uh, we don't make a hard fast rule that you can never be attacked by a bug here. I promise there's a bug. I'm not just going crazy. Um, I've told them, I'm not, I want to be legalistic and I don't want to make a rule you can't use Hillsong. But let's, um, let's try not to. There's a lot of other really good music that's out there. Maybe we need to rewrite some of the hymns that are there. We've got such incredible talent at the church that we could write some of our own songs and rewrite things. And um, I think that it is problematic. So maybe on all of these, it might be good to back away from it. But I would not be legalistic about it. 
and say that it is some kind of sin when people are listening uh, to any of the music on any of these groups. <clears throat> All right. So thank you very much. I appreciate that. We have another question, I think. Let's go ahead and take a look at this. Yeah, trying to build a kingdom rather than doing the work of the ministry is a real problem that churches can run into and that people can run into. Uh, we have a question from Kay Fox. Kay, good to see you. She comes to us from YouTube. Kay says, when you stand before the great judgment of God to give an account for how we spent this time, how are we supposed to feel really, really bad about so many bad choices? Thank you. Okay, so let's talk about judgment for a minute. There are two phases to the judgment. There's the great white judgment throne. And all of the people that are resurrected at the very end are resurrected to the second death, it says. In fact, it calls the, the second resurrection the second death. It doesn't call it the second resurrection. There's the first resurrection, which is everybody that is resurrected before that, before the, tri uh, before the uh, tribulation, after the tribulation, and then you have the millennium, and then you have everyone resurrected to the second death. And anyone who's resurrected to the second death stands before the great white judgment throne. We, okay, have not been. We won't be judged there. And praise God for that. The books are going to be opened and they're going to have to answer for what they did. But we have the blood of Jesus that has cleansed us from our sins. So God has separated them as far as the east is from the west. He's put them behind his back and remembers them no more. What a great thing for God to do for us so that we will not be judged by them. However, we do have the Bema Seat judgment. And this is a judgment for our motives. We're going to be rewarded. And I don't understand everything that the Bible has to say about rewards. We have it all. We're co-inheritors with Jesus. And, and what will the rewards be for someone who gets more and someone who gets less? I've often said that because what I do is very visible, I'll receive less rewards than what someone does behind the scenes. Jesus said, when you do your good works, do them in secret so men will see them and glorify God. And so it's really easy to get earthly rewards. And so God says, you don't have that many rewards. But if you've done something for the wrong motive, if I'm preaching to be seen, if I'm praying to be heard, like the Pharisees did, then God will put a fire to those motives, to, the, to those works. And those that are made of wood, hay, and stubble will be burned up. And those that remain, you'll receive a reward for. So I don't know that during that Bema Seat judgment, we will feel that bad about what we've done because we've been forgiven and really be forgiven. I don't know whether there'll be any regret. Wow, I wish I would have just lived more for Christ. I wish I would have just done the things that God wants me to do instead of, instead of trying to live for myself and build a kingdom for myself. The Bible says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. That's a pretty strong statement. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. So the kind of things that we're going to be rewarded for are things that are in secret, things that we didn't tell anybody about, things we didn't brag about. When people give a lot of money to the poor and then come and tell everybody, I gave this much money to the poor. Well, you're just telling us what really was going on in your heart and your motive. So I don't know, okay, that we're going to feel really, really bad. We're, we may feel some regret that we were not faithful with what God's given us and that we had the wrong motives. But what that ought to motivate us to do now is to get the right motives. And if we're doing things to be seen by men to stop it, 
and to do things secretly and to do things to glorify God and to lift up his name because then we'll receive rewards for those very things that we are looking to do. All right, so um, the Bema Seat Judgment is the judgment during the tribulation period. We'll have been raptured and be with Christ and our, and our motives will be judged at that point and we will not take part in the Great White Judgment because, hey, the wrath of God, I've been freed from it. No longer is the wrath of the Lamb on me because Jesus took the wrath of the Father on the cross for us. And so we are set free from all of those things. All right, so thank you, Kay. I appreciate that and good to have you here. If you're just joining us, we want to welcome you. If you have a question, then go ahead and write your question down. And uh, then uh, you can go ahead and write your question, reread it a couple of times, make sure that it makes sense. All right, well, I'm going to take in a second question here from Kay. Um, we've been doing just one question, okay? So we'll do that in the future. But part two, um, how does this, my previous question, influence salvation? It seems to produce a lot of worry knowing this. So that causes works. Okay, so what you're saying. Um, so yeah, works, you don't have to do anything to get saved. You come just as you are. The only thing that you've got to do is come to Christ. That's it. And you're saved. You don't have to take a shower to take a bath. And this is what anybody tells you that there's some work that you've got to do. You got to join this church. Cults will say you've got to join that cult. You've got to be baptized. You've got to speak in tongues. Uh, you've, got to, uh, you've got to keep the Sabbath. Whatever it is that they add to it is works. And the Bible says we're saved by faith through grace, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And that's the problem with legalism. It makes you want to boast. You boast in what you have done. You boast in your own salvation. So you come to Christ and you're saved. And the Bema Seat Judgment isn't going to affect your salvation at all. And we're saved from, we won't go through the white judgment seat. So it doesn't affect us. There's no way in which the Bema Seat Judgment affects your salvation. Just be confident. Put on the helmet of salvation. You love Jesus, live for him, be confident with what you have. Put on the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, your feet prepared with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the shield of faith, which puts out the fiery darts of the enemy and the sword of the spirit. And then stand and pray and know that you are saved. And yeah, um, we're going to have, I think our study this coming up next week, our study next week will be in Luke on the minas. And he talks about giving them the minas and then being rewarded for it. So we're going to talk more about rewards, not this weekend, which is Resurrection Sunday, but the following weekend, we're going to talk more about rewards and we'll talk about works I mean, we'll talk about um, this, this, this question of how our works are judged and what that means to us. All right. So thank you for your follow-up. And by the way, Kay, we do allow follow-up questions. So all you got to do is when you write your questions, you put part two here, just put follow-up and I'll be able to look at it and see easily that that is a follow-up question. So again, if you're new here, really glad to have you. I hope you guys are blessed. I hope that you have a really good resurrection celebration wherever you are. Uh, we have another question. Um, oh, it's another question about cremation. So we covered that already. So let me bring it in here. I'll give you the quick answer. Like I said, this is a question we get a lot. Um, I'm going to put a frequently asked question uh, tab in my notes and I'll just be able to pull up notes with a few scriptures on it that will help you. But there's nothing in the Bible that tells you that you cannot be cremated. You can be cremated. It's no problem. It's, um, it's not going to cause God not to bring you into heaven. It's not going to be able to cause God to stop you from being resurrected. All right. So there's, there's no worries about that. All right, Annie, I appreciate it though. 
um, I will, like I said, I'll put some, together some scriptures so that we can pop it open and look at just a few of them when we get these questions that we are asked a lot. All right, so um, Daniel has a question. Uh, Daniel says, uh, Jonah in the whale is a foretelling of Jesus's death and resurrection, okay? Did Jonah die in the whale and then resurrected? Uh, Jonah 2.19 seems kind of like an account, uh, seems like some kind of an account by Jonah. Yeah, let's, um, let's go ahead and go there, Daniel. Um, so th this is really interesting. Is it possible that Jonah died and was resurrected? Now, he wasn't resurrected like Christ, who was the first one ever to be resurrected in a glorified body. It certainly seems as Jonah covers this information like he is actually in hell. And I guess if he's conscious in the whale's stomach, it probably was like hell. So let me go ahead and bring these scriptures up on the screen and we'll take a look at it and see if we can figure anything out from the scriptures. All right, so that's not the one I want. That's the one I want. All right, so this is Jonah chapter two and you said uh, one through nine, right? Um, then Jonah prayed to the Lord God from the fish's belly. And he said, I cried out, let me get to the right spot here. I cried out, O Lord, because of my affliction. And he answered me, out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and the floods surround me. All billows of your waves passed over me. Then I said, I have been, been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again toward the holy temple. The waters surrounded me, even my soul. The, depth, the deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountain. The earth with its bars closed uh, behind me forever. Yet you have brought me up from life from the pit. O Lord, my God, when my soul fainted uh, within me, I remembered the Lord and my prayer went up to you in the holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy or forsake their own, yeah, their own mercy. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is from the Lord. So that's a really interesting passage because it looks like he's talking about the resurrection and he uses Jonah as a, as a resurrection. And so we know that the Bible is much more complicated than what we think. It's got these hyperlinks in it. It's connected. There's all these foreshadowings and types that happen. And Jonah seems to be a foreshadowing or a type of Jesus. And types don't fit perfectly. Jonah doesn't want to go. Jesus wants to go. Uh, Jonah is very successful. Jesus is very successful at saving people. Jonah is very successful when he goes, even though he's probably a pretty rotten prophet. Uh, Jonah is a bigot. He does not want to go to these people because uh, he hates them. So he hates a people group. And that's a problem, right? And um, Jesus, of course, loves everyone and loves everyone the same and doesn't see people by what race they are or by whether they're male or female. And so Jesus is radically different, but it seems that Jonah in a way became a type of Jesus. So it's a really interesting question. And, and by the way, it's a great study. When you get to chapter two in, in Jonah and you teach on it, it is just an absolute great study. Thank you, Daniel. I appreciate it. And Daniel is one of our moderators here. I appreciate you, um, all you moderators that, you know, kind of make sure that the, <laughs> that our chat 
area is a good area. All right, so um, we have a, another question. And we're getting close to the end here now. I'm bringing this next question from Paul. And Paul says, question, in the last days when God comes, will people have a chance to give their life to God or are there no second chances once he returns? So yes, people can give their lives to Christ during the tribulation period. And we see that clearly. There are people who are going to be saved, who will not take the mark of the beast. There are people talked about in the tribulation period that are saints. And we know that saints are taken out. And so these saints have had to be saints somehow. We will have people who are left behind. And when we have people, friends and family who are left behind, then they're going to see us go and not believe the lies that are out there about what happened to the Christians during that time, right? And so, yeah, after Jesus comes back, the Holy Spirit will still be here. The Holy Spirit in the church is taken away, but the Holy Spirit will be, still be working in people and people will give their lives to Christ. And when you take the mark of the beast, then you've gone too far. If you take that, you're giving allegiance to, and you cannot be saved after taking the mark of the beast. At least that's my understanding at the present time. All right, so thank you very much. I appreciate that. We just look here, we can bring in um, one more question and we will be done. If uh, we miss your question here, come back next time and uh, write your question out. You might even be able just to copy it and paste it into your notes and then you'll be able to come back and take care of those questions. So we have one last question and this uh, comes to us from Facebook. Uh, it says, can we say Jesus' disciples were born again like believers today? And since they began to follow him before he died for the sins of the world. Uh, yes, I do believe that we can say that they were born again. Not necessarily at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. They were living in the Old Testament times there. But then Jesus dies on the cross and it flips. And now all of a sudden, we see people who are born again. Now Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus didn't understand that completely. But the process of Jesus dying on the cross hadn't happened yet. And so they were still being accredited righteousness. And the blood of bulls and goats could only cover things. And so we have a standing with God that the Old Testament saints didn't have. And so Jesus in John chapter 20, I think it is, breathes on his disciples and tells them to receive the Holy Spirit. At that moment, I believe that they are officially born again because no one can say Jesus is Lord without the Holy Spirit. They followed him, they believed him, they were like Old Testament saints, but then at that point they are born again and he tells them, go and wait in Jerusalem and you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my disciples uh, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. So thank you very much for your question. It's a great question and it helps us to understand the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament um, and Old Testament saints and New Testament saints. We, we can't say of Old Testament saints that they are, that they are the, uh, in the church and New, New Testament saints are. And so that point happened at the cross. That's the divider. The cross from people who lived during Old Testament times and New Testament times, even though there are people that lived on both sides of that, right? But yeah, they were born again. So thank you guys again for all of your questions. I will get this. Um, looks like we went through them all. So uh, thank you. I appreciate you. Love you. 
May you have a great resurrection celebration wherever you are and wherever you go. May you remember that Jesus rose from the dead and it was foretold. The Bible gives so many prophecies about Jesus. Have great confidence that that tomb was empty because Jesus rose from the dead and we get to go celebrate it. Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. God bless you guys. I'm going to go ahead and sign out and we'll see you uh, this next Wednesday. We'll have another Q&A. We'll be talking about the resurrection. We'll be talking about the service that we have where we're going to go over the Emmaus Road tomorrow and tomorrow morning. That's what we're doing at Calvary Tucson. And so if you want to read or join us for our study, the Emmaus Road uh, out of John, I think it's John, uh, no, excuse me, it's Luke 20, uh, 24, 11 through 35, I think is this the passage. Go ahead and read that. And if you have questions about it, and you can ask them at our next Q&A and um, we'll answer questions that you have. And if you go to the study, take some notes. And if you have questions as we're, you're going through it and you'll be able to come and ask it and we can really dive in even more so than we do at our study and Q&As are great for that. All right, so we have a service in about an hour on the Emmaus Road, Jesus as he interacts with them. Uh, it's, good. it's a great passage. I think you're really going to enjoy it. You can join us online or at one of our campuses this weekend. And a reminder, if you go to the church, we have services at different times now. This service only, we're doing four Sunday morning services and one Saturday night that is resurrection celebration. We're going to gather together and worship the Lord and celebrate his resurrection. And I can't wait. All right. Love you guys. We will see you.